If you've got a Bible, open to 1 Peter chapter 3. Uh, we'll be in verses 8 to 12 this morning, reading there. If you're new with us, we've been in 1 Peter for quite some time now. We've been plowing away through what Peter has to say to us, and we've been seeing what it looks like to live as a citizen of God's kingdom in this earthly kingdom called the United States of America, that we are sojourners here, that we are exiles here, that we are resident aliens here, but our true citizenship lies in heaven with God. And so we've been working our way through that book together over the course of these last several months, and this morning we find ourselves landing in a passage where Peter shifts gears a little bit and he begins to move away from talking about how the church relates to authority structures, whether it be outside in the world in 2.13 to 17, how the church relates to governing officials and bodies and elected authorities that are put in position above us. Or how we relate as employees to employers. In the text, Peter talks about how slaves and masters relate to one another. And how the slaves should come underneath the authority and leadership of those who are their masters. Or in 3, 1 to 7, where Peter talks about the husband-wife dynamic. So he's been talking about authority and submission, and authority and submission, and authority and submission. And then he comes in 3, 8 to 12 to shift gears to move from how does the church relate in many ways and occasions to those who are external to them to how does the church relate to those who are internal to them. In other words, what kind of body is God wanting to form? What kind of body is God wanting to put together? And so in 3, 8 to 12, he begins to shift gears a little bit and talks about some of the dynamics and characteristics of what that body called the church should look like. So in 3, 8 to 12, let's read it together and then get to work. Beginning in verse 8, the Apostle Peter says, Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Listen, there is a, a, a current reality in which we're living, and many of you feel this reality in your everyday lives. You feel it in the news feeds on your social media channels. You feel it in the national network reporting. You feel it at times even in local network reporting. There is a reality in which we are living in which the cultural winds that have been blowing in our nation for 300 years have shifted away from propelling the church to coming against it to a large degree. There's a, the cultural winds have shifted. And so what I want us to consider this morning is these characteristics that Peter speaks of as being characteristics of a church that is going to have that wind as it blows against it, fill its sails and propel it forward because there is a different dynamic in here amongst God's people than there is outside of these walls. See, this wind as it has shifted, it's going to have a couple of different results for people in their lives. It will cause some, all right, there'll be at least two different results. It will cause some to snap. 
You know, when the wind blows hard against something, it's particularly if it's um, not very well rooted and if it's not, you know, if the base of that tree isn't very thick and strong, uh, it can cause it to just snap like a toothpick. Some of you saw that yesterday whenever we went over to Rowlett and we worked in some of those neighborhoods with some of those people. How trees looked like they were just kind of, somebody came along like I threw in my yard and they just kind of pluck it up, right, like a weed. Like they, somebody put, God came and pulled up some weeds. So trees were just toppled over, whole root systems exposed or snapped in half. And there will be some individuals and congregations as the wind shifts and starts to blow harder and harder who will snap. And they will snap in one of two ways. Either they will snap doctrinally and they will give up certain doctrines in order to kind of uh, mitigate the wind as it blows against them or they will give up mission. They will either give up doctrine or mission, one of the two. So there are some who will give up doctrine and they will shift from being an amplifier to being an editor. Right? There are some who will snap and they'll become an editor of God's word as opposed to an amplifier for it. You know the difference? Some of us will begin to function as God's editors. Like God's written a manuscript here and he's submitted it to us in a little packet and we open it up and put it on our desk and we kind of peruse through it and we begin to mark it up and we begin to cut pieces out and we begin to kind of clean it up to make it more palatable for people who we might want to deliver it to. And then we say, God, we've done you a favor, right? We've edited your work for you. You're welcome, right? Some will shift to becoming God's editors, Whereas others will kind of shift to becoming God's filters. They may still hold on to certain doctrines, but those things don't show up in what they preach and teach publicly. It's only buried somewhere on a website in a doctrinal statement in footnote number seven. And so they hold to certain doctrines, but they never talk about them when they may give them up altogether and become God's editor rather than an amplifier. You know what an amplifier does? Like if you have an amplifier for an electric guitar or a bass guitar or a keyboard, the only thing that an amplifier can do is transmit the signal that comes into it. It can transmit the signal that comes into it. The signal that it receives, it broadcasts and amplifies. And there are some who will snap underneath these winds because they will begin to function like God's editor rather than his amplifier. There are others who will not just give up, who won't maybe necessarily give up doctrine, but they'll give up mission. They'll snap and they'll retreat into a storm shelter. And they'll basically be content to ride out the rest of their life in a tornado pod with pork and beans and ramen noodles <laughs> and lots of ammunition. I know, I know you guys, right? So you give up mission. You give up mission. And as opposed to embracing the opportunity to sprinkle salt whenever you get shaken and to diffuse light whenever you get broken and pierced, we'll just kind of Kind of, we'll conceal ourselves and become kind of vampires, right? Never dawning, never, never seeing the light of day, never engaging people in conversation, never seeking to bring the truth to bear in certain conversations. We'll just kind of recede into the background and we'll stay quiet. And so some will snap and they'll break and they'll give up doctrine, and others will give up mission. But if you give up either, then you snapped. You snapped. That would be one result. Second result that I, could, I, can, I can kind of foresee of happening in, in certain people's lives and in the lives of certain churches, some will snap while others will sing. Others will sing like they've never sung before. Never sung before. 
There's a sculpture that's built high up in the hills of Lancashire, England. It's called the Singing Tree. I've got a picture of it for you. It's a wind-powered sound sculpture. It resembles a tree in the landscape of the hills overlooking Burnley. It's designed by a couple of architects, and it's constructed out of galvanized steel pipe. Some of the piping that you see is structural elements and visual elements, and other of the piping that you see um, is the, 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 uh, the, the musical elements in the construction. It's about nine feet tall, and it harnesses the energy of the wind to produce what would be a slightly discordant sound, penetrating choral sound that covers a range of different, several different octaves. Some of the pipes are, as I said, structural and visual. Others are harmonic, but the harmonic and singing qualities of the tree were produced by the tuning of the pipes by the way they cut them and holes that they drilled underneath to produce the different sounds. Now, what's interesting and intriguing about this tree, other than its design, because it looks pretty cool, right? You want to build one of those in your front yard, but your HOA probably won't let you. And so it looks pretty cool, right? Pretty intriguing to look at, visually appealing. And yet... It's just a big pile of metal unless the wind blows. But when the wind blows, it begins to sing. And the harder the wind blows, the stronger, louder the song is. Listen, there are some who will snap when the wind blows against them. And there are others who will sing. And they will sing at the top of their voices. It will be the wind that fills their sails and carries them forward. Which will you be? Which will I be? Which will we be as a church? That's one of the questions before us in this very text. Because Peter comes to a place where he says, if you're going to sing as a people, if you're going to sing as a Christian, if you're going to sing and not snap when the wind begins to blow, then there's got to be something distinct internally in here amongst these people that you're not going to find anywhere else. And it's not just a commitment to a particular morality or a commitment to a particular religiosity, but it's a commitment to a particular character that gets formed in your life as you cross over from death to life and from darkness to light and from despair to hope. And God says, live, and you come to life, and you have the life of God coursing through your veins. First Peter chapter 1, verse 3, that he causes us to be born again to a living hope. And those of us who have experienced that, those of us who have been born of God, and have his life coursing through our veins. There's a particular character that he forms us into. That Peter begins to drill down on in verses 8 and 9. Now we've only got time to get to two of them this morning. Because the introduction was like 12 minutes. Okay? So we're going to get to two of these things this morning. What kind of character does God need to form in our lives? What needs to happen in order for us to sing and not snap? And the first thing that I would tell you out of this text that needs to happen in your life and in my life is that there must be a death of North Texas Christianity. There must be a death of North Texas Christianity. If you've been around here for a while, you've heard me speak of this before. You've heard me talk about this reality before. North Texas Christianity, it takes it tends to gravitate toward being very nominal, very comfortable, very casual, very cultural. Very nominal, very comfortable, very casual, and very cultural. 
And yet when the wind begins to blow against North Texas Christianity, there's going to be a lot of snapping that occurs. Because in North Texas Christianity, we're not stretched. We're not called to sacrifice. Oftentimes, it's just kind of a pat on the back and a rub on the belly and go about your way. Right? It's not very challenging. But New Testament Christianity, basically, when you, if you look at what took place in the New Testament, it kind of almost cuts the roots off of North Texas Christianity because it's not nominal. It's pretty radical. It's not very cultural, but it's countercultural. It's not very comfortable, but it leads you to sacrifice. At times, it cuts you to heal you. And it's painful at times. And if we're going to be this kind of people that Peter describes here, there's got to be a death of North Texas Christianity. And what needs to be resurrected from that is a New Testament vital Christian faith. A New Testament vital Christian faith. So a few weeks ago, I saw a, a video produced by another church in our community that talked about, um, uh, you know, asked their attenders there to sum up the church in five words. So they go through and they, they talk about all the things that the, the church, you know, is, is characteristic of that church, or they feel is characteristic of that church, one of the things that draws them there, keeps them there. And Peter does the same thing for us here. He gives us these five descriptors, but notice these five descriptors are adjectives. I want you to see that. That's where I'm getting this from. They're not commands. They're adjectives. In other words, they describe a consistent character and not obedience to an occasional command. A consistent, some of you missed that. A consistent character, not obedience to an occasional command. Listen, there's a, some of you guys like baseball, right? Spring training is upon us. And you got guys who are working their tails off to try and win a championship at the end of the year. But you got people who are on those teams who are part of that, what will eventually be that roster that sits in the dugouts together day after day after day. And they go on road trips and they play. But there are some people who are part of those franchises and those teams who contribute a little bit more than others. There are some folks who are like pinch runners, Okay, And one of the reasons they're on the team is because they're a lot faster than the pudgy guy who plays first base. Okay, And so whenever they need someone to pinch run, right, they put this little dude in there. He's like, you know, five foot five, you know, 150 pounds dripping wet, but he can just blaze the bases. But he gets out on the field like 15 times a year to run the bases in those particular circumstances. But then there are other, other players on those franchises, on those teams that are, that, are, that are consistent, dependable, everyday producers. Everyday producers. They hit 300. They, they, they crush 35, 40 homers. They drive 102 runs every annually. They're consistent, everyday producers. Not occasional contributors. Consistent, everyday producers, not occasional contributors. Listen, if, if the church is going to sing, there's going to be an internal quality about us, a consistent character about who we are. Not just that we did something five years ago, right? We went on this little trip five years ago where we served some people, and then we sit around, and we talk about how nostalgic that was. See, some of us, our Christian life is nostalgic and not current, 
It's nostalgic and not current. We sit around and we talk about, man, how great was that three years ago when we all got together and we went down and we shared the gospel with those people or we went and cleaned. Like three years from now, some of you are going to be going, how great was that when we went to that um, rallet over there and picked up debris and, and, and served people? How great, and that's, all, that's the last thing you can remember that you actually put your hands to and engaged in. Some of us, our Christian faith is not current, it's nostalgic. And we reminisce about the good old days. And if we're going to sing, there's got to be a church that emerges that is, this character is being formed into consistent, consistent producers whose Christian life is current and not nostalgic. And for that to take place, North Texas Christianity has to die. And New Testament Christianity must be resurrected. Now, one of those adjectives, or two of those adjectives that Peter drills down on in this text or the first one and the last one, and that list of five that he gives. And those are the two that we're going to kind of marry together this morning and consider what Peter's saying to us. Listen, l- listen, to, listen to what he says. He says, what should finally all of you, whether you're a position of authority or under authority, whether you're an employer or employee, whether you're a husband or a wife, whether you're a child, a student, right? Whether you're a teacher, no matter what position you hold, no matter where you are on that, on, on, on that uh, position of, of authority, he says, all of you, he says, have unity of mind is the first one. The last one, he says, have a humble mind. He talks about not only what we think, but how we think. He says there should be a consistency in what we think and how we think. What Peter says to us in those two bookends of those five adjectives is this. He says that the church, if it's going to sing as the wind blows, they've got to learn and begin and grow and progressively reflect a theme the same about the things that matter most. We must think the same about things that matter most. There's got to be a humility in the way that we think and a unity in what we think. Now, some of you are sitting here this morning, you're going, man, that's, are you serious right now? Are you serious? We got to think the same about everything? I don't think that's what Peter's talking about when he says have unity of mind. Because there's going to be different tastes. Some of you like prefer, you know, a salad over a steak. I'm not sure why, but you, maybe you do, right? Some of you may prefer, right, hip hop over country or classic rock over pop. Some of those obviously have greater value to them. Um, and some some of you prefer, you know, Chevy over Ford or Toyota, right? Some of you prefer, right? There's all different kinds of preferences in these secondary issues. All kinds of secondary issues that we have preferences and different tastes and different likes. But in the things that matter most, when we think of God, when you think of who he is, who we are, and why we are here, there's got to be a unity around that. In order for there to be a unity around that, there's got to be a humility in the way that we think. See, most of us, when we think of the word humility, I want, to, I want to ask you to consider something this morning. When you think of humility, most of us think that humility is looking in the mirror and going, that's not real impressive. Right? So you think less of yourself. So you look in the mirror and you go, man, I don't really have a whole lot to offer. I'm not really attractive. I'm not really talented. I'm not really gifted. So I'm going to think of myself as less. I'm going to think less of myself. 
I'm going to think less of myself. I think in comparison to other people or in comparison to God. So that's humility. And while there is a certain aspect of humility that's reflected in that, Listen, humility, another, another, another expression of humility is not just to think less of yourself when you look in the mirror, but it's to think of yourself less. Not just to think less of yourself, but to think of yourself less. That's a part of humility. In other words, setting other people's needs above your own. Setting other people's, uh, sacrificing for them. Not thinking of myself. What can I give them and what can I give to them? That's a part of humility. Is that not just do you think less of yourself, but you think of yourself less. And listen, when you begin to think of yourself less, when a church begins to think of itself less, when Christians begin to think of themselves less, then there is a unity that emerges in what they're thinking about. And they begin to think the same about the things that matter most. That's how unity gets produced in a home. Right? Whenever husbands and wives, they don't look in the mirror and go, I'm pretty pathetic. <laughs> they might do that. Um, I do that every once in a while. But they look in the mirror and they go, I've got to think of myself less in relationship to my wife. Or I've got to think of myself less in relationship to my husband. And whenever both parties are thinking of themselves less, of their needs and more about the other person's needs, there's a unity that emerges in that home. See, the reason some of you don't have unity within your four walls is because you think of yourself more than you think of your spouse. Instead of thinking of them more than you think of yourself. The reason there's, the reason there's tension, students, some of you with your moms and dads, with your parents, is because you're, not, you're, you're thinking of yourself more than you are thinking of them. Maybe some of you parents in here this morning, maybe the reason you've created some of that tension is because you don't think of yourself less in relationship to your kids. But when, 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 when there's a dynamic within a family where people are thinking of themselves less, there is a unity that emerges. So the way that we're thinking affects what we think. What we think. And Peter says, if the church is going to sing, it must begin to think the same about the things that matter most. And I want to push really hard on one of those this morning. Okay? So buckle in. (laughs) When we think the same about the things that matter most, one area I'm afraid that many churches And many Christians don't think the same about what matters most, about why they are here, why God didn't just automatically suck them up into heaven the moment that God said, come alive. One of the the ways that churches, church members, me as a pastor at times, we think of ourselves more rather than thinking of ourselves less is whenever we exchange, we exchange and we make the great aim of our life We make the great aim of our life community rather than disciple-making. We make the great aim of our life, listen to that, community and not disciple-making. Earlier this week, I watched a clip of a a, a well-known pastor on the East Coast. Um, Some of you may have seen that clip. I'm not going to mention his name. But (laughs) there was a clip of his message 
um, that was taken in context, by the way. It wasn't like a 10-second clip that just somebody ripped out of context and kind of threw out there on YouTube or on Facebook or someplace. Um, it was a three-minute impassioned argument to persuade people that was written in, that he himself admitted that he was passionate about. And what he was passionate about and what he was calling people to do, this is basically what he said. He stated that if you attend a church that is not big enough to divide the middle school and high school ministry so that your kids have plenty of opportunity to make friends, then you need to leave your church and, I quote, go find a big old church. A big old church. With separate middle school and high school ministries. And he even went on to say that if you're at a church a small church, a church that doesn't have the ability to separate those ministries out because of the numbers of kids who are there, then you are being selfish and you don't care about your kids. At which time his congregation started to applaud a little bit. I don't even know where to start with that. (laughs) I I would love to hear the Apostle Paul respond to that. I would love to hear Peter address that issue. James, lean into that conversation. I would love to hear what they would say. And I think you get a glimpse of this in the book of Acts. Now listen, I'm not going to say this morning there's anything inherently wrong with being a large church or a small church. I'm not going to say that. I think both have upsides and downsides. But I want you to see something in the book of Acts. In the book of Acts in chapter 1, verse 8 Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, before he ascends into heaven, he comes to his followers, and this is what he says to them. He says, I want you to be my disciples here in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria, and where? You know this. To the ends of the earth. Many of you know this. To the ends of the earth, across the globe. It's like, all right, man, sign us up. And in the church in Jerusalem, it begins to grow rapidly. Peter stands up to preach at Pentecost, and there's like Thousands of people who come to faith in Jesus and they get grafted into the church. So you got on day one almost of the church, you get this mega church operating in the city of Jerusalem. I mean, it was pretty amazing. The preaching was awesome. Peter and James and John, they're standing up each weekend opening the Bible and saying, Thus saith the Lord. And people are coming to faith in Jesus. The preaching was amazing. You got Mary. She's like running the mops program, you know. She's doing mentoring moms and leading ladies Bible studies. You got deacons who are serving the practical needs of the community so the elders can focus on the ministry of the word and prayer. You got a church big enough to divide the middle school and high school ministry right there in Jerusalem. And what does God do? He sends a wave of persecution that sweeps across the whole Roman Empire, including Jerusalem. And what happens when that happens? People scatter. And they take the gospel to places where Christ had not yet been preached and his name was not yet known. Across the entire Mediterranean world. See, I'm I'm afraid that in this last generation of those who've come up as church-attending, self-professing Christians, and in this generation of them, there are many who think that the Great Commission reads like this, go therefore into all the world, creating community, drinking coffee, going to concerts, sharing meals together, taking vacations together, working on projects with one another, hanging out and quote-unquote doing life together. And I will bless your friendships and companionship with my presence until the end of the age. And that's, that's the Great Commission. 
That's not at all what, what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 28 when he says, Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them, teaching them to observe the things that I've commanded you. And when you're engaged in the commission, the pursuit of the commission, I will be with you to the very end of this age, until the skies part and Jesus returns, or until you draw your last breath. Jesus says, I'm going to be with you, empowering you, encouraging you, equipping you. See, the great aim of the church is not to make community, but to make disciples. There's nothing wrong with having good friends. There's nothing wrong with sharing a meal together. There's nothing wrong with working on projects together. But if that becomes the great aim of your life, then you've exchanged commission for community. And what happens in those instances is things become ingrown very quickly. And everything else that I know of that's ingrown typically becomes very painful and eventually has to be surgically removed. When we exchange the pursuit of the Great Commission for the pursuit of great community, we begin to make groupies who like to hang out rather than disciples who are willing to lay down their lives, their preferences, and their comfort to take the gospel to the ends of the earth or even across town. Do we think the same about the things that matter most? C.T. Studd, man, that's a great name. <laughs> I don't even feel worthy to read what he's written because of how he lived. He was a very wealthy individual in England. And upon coming to faith in Jesus, he leveraged his financial capital for the sake of the gospel around the globe. And at the age of 50, considering that retirement was not an option for him as a faithful, Jesus-loving, world-evangelizing Christian, determined that he was going to leave England, he was going to travel the globe to share the gospel and plant churches. And he ended up spending the later years of his life in Sudan where he is now buried. And this is what he says. He says, Believing that further delay would be sinful, some of God's insignificance and nobody's in particular, in other words, there's nothing special about us, but trusting in our omnipotent God who's all-powerful, have decided on certain simple lines, according to the book of God, to make a definite attempt to render the evangelization of the world an accomplished fact. For this purpose, we have banded ourselves together under the name of Christ and invite others of God's people to join us in this glorious enterprise. Our method is to search and find out what parts of the world at present remain unevangelized and then by faith in Christ, by prayer to God, by obedience to the Holy Ghost, by courage, determination, and supreme sacrifice to accomplish their evangelization with the utmost dispatch. Too long we have been waiting for another to begin. The time for waiting is past. The hour of God has struck. In God's holy name, let us arise and build. The God of heaven, he will fight for us and we for him. We will not build on sand but on the bedrock of the sayings of Christ. And the gates and minions of hell shall not prevail against us. Such men as we fear. In other words, why should we be afraid? Before the whole world, I, 
That's a good word. Before the sleepy, lukewarm, faithless, namby-pamby Christian world, we will dare to trust our God and we will venture our all for him. We will live and we will die for him. And we will do it with his joy unspeakable, singing aloud in our hearts. We will a thousand times sooner die trusting only in our God than live trusting in man. And when we come to this passion or this position, the battle is already won and the end of this glorious campaign is in sight. We will have the real holiness of God, not the sickly stuff of talk and dainty words and pretty thoughts. We will have a masculine holiness, one of daring faith and works for Jesus Christ. And let me tell you, he's appropriately named C.T. Stud. Listen, church, if we're going to sing as the wind blows against us, we cannot make the great pursuit of our life comfortable community with people that we like. But we must lay down our preferences. We must lay down our comfort and embrace the commission that God has given us to take the gospel to all peoples in all places, even those who live across town. Now, some of the things this might mean for us. And students, I want to speak specifically to you this morning. I'm going to let you adults listen in as well, because maybe some of you need to be compelled to this. Listen, I've talked to some of you over the course of time about what your aspirations are. Uh, particularly those of you who are preparing to graduate from school and what you're wanting to do and the kind of, kind of jobs or careers that you want to pursue. My, my hope and my prayer is that God would sow, that God would sow, he would, he would create such a distaste in your mouth for namby-pamby Christianity and such a distaste in your mouth for sickly talk or sickly holiness and uh, dainty words and sweet thoughts that we can sit around in a circle and talk about. We create such a, 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 a distaste in your mouth for just that. It's not wrong to have that, but for just that. That some of you, you would lay down your career aspirations or you would leverage them. Leverage them. You want to be a nurse? Take the gospel to the world through those skills. You want to be a doctor? Take the gospel to the world through those skills. You want to be an athlete or work in athletics? Take the gospel to the world through those skills. You would would either lay that down and say, God, send me to the hard places. Send me to the places that no one else wants to go. The places where people have not heard. The places where people do not know. Send me there. I'm going to let go of my career aspirations or I'm going to leverage them for you. Man, that's that's my desire for you. And some of you, parents, adults in the room, maybe that you would lay down your pursuit of the corporate agenda and you would say, sign me up, send me out, God, wherever, wherever. Wherever. Some of us, God may call to the hard places. Some of us, God may call to plant churches 
and leave this one and plant another one. Some of you may be pastors or elders in those congregations. As they launch out, be part of this vision of planting gospel-centered, mission-minded churches from Levon to Poetry, from Rockwall to Greenville, all across Rockwall County, Hunt County, Collin County, and to the ends of the earth, wherever God would raise up a passion and a desire for someone to go and take the gospel. Maybe some of you would plant churches or be a part of a team that would come out from our church to plant others, whether it be here locally or nationally or internationally. Maybe some of you would launch life groups to be a part of multiplying families of missionary servants in our community. Listen, some of our life groups are kind of like supercells. Right? You got like seven people in some of those things that could be leading one themselves. But oftentimes what we want to choose is that, that couch in that circle of community as opposed to the commission. And I'm praying that God would raise up people here who would say, you know what, I love these people. I love them and I will stay connected to them and I will continue to invest in them and they will continue to invest in me. But God, would you use me to go Plant a life group in the heart of Royce City or the heart of poetry or the heart of Levon or in the middle of downtown Rockwall. Wherever it is, God, would you send me out? I'm tired of just sitting in community. I want to be a part of this commission. Some of us, it may be just we walk across the street and we invite a neighbor to church. And we let go of that fear of rejection. I don't know what it's going to look like for you. I don't know what God's going to call you to do. But here's the question. Do we think the same about the things that matter most? Is there a unity because there's a humility? We're thinking of ourselves less. So we can be part of this commission that God's given us. We didn't even get to the second one this morning. We'll, we'll come back next week. Some of you are going, man, that's a hard pill to swallow. That's a, that, that, man, you've pushed on some areas of my life this morning. And maybe God's pushing on areas of your life this morning that you go, you know what? I, I, don't, I have no idea where to start with that. I don't even know if I can do that. Listen, if that's you this morning, here's what I want to encourage you to do. I want you to gaze, I want you to gaze at the one who left community, the eternal, ultimate community, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And he left that and laid it all aside, considering non-equality with God something to be grasped, but took the very nature of a servant, thinking of himself less do you see that's at the very heart of the Christian faith? Do you see it's at the very heart of this good news that we proclaim? That the Son left the Father and the Spirit and came to earth. He left that eternal community. The ultimate one, where no one ever gets offended. <laughs> where no one has ever wronged them. And he came here to be Mistreated, rejected, reviled, abused, cursed, slandered, and crucified.
Gaze at him. Fix your eyes on him. Continue to think about him. Because that's the only solution to not thinking about yourself. Let's pray together. Father, we are so incredibly grateful for your grace. And God, even as I speak these words today, a part of my own soul is going, really? This is what you would call us to. That if we were to be a church that doesn't snap under the wind, the weight of the wind, that we must be a church that thinks the same about the things that matter most, that we would not retreat from the mission and we would not make the great aim of our life community, but commission. Father, we recognize that we can't do this apart from you. And so, God, we look to you. We fix our gaze on you. In particular, your son. And as we do so, as we see the one who left the ultimate community for our sakes, may we be willing to leave to leave at times the community we've created or even that you have created by your spirit. You've bound our hearts together for the sake of the commission. Would you awaken us to that reality? And would you put a fire in our hearts that would burn? For the people who have not heard, for your glory, and for our good. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.